You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. So I'm here on the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. I got an old friend that reached out. Man, it's good to connect with him. He's playing basketball overseas as a pro basketball player. And it's been cool because he actually told me, hey, I don't mind. I'll jump on the show. But he's asking me questions that I get from a lot of my former teammates and friends. And I get a lot of emails. And so really, we're just going to dive into that today. And so, man, if y'all want to welcome, I guess, Jonathan Hudson. Hey, so happy um, to be here, man. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to, you know, ask these questions. Yeah, I think the thing is, man, and obviously we call him Jay Hud. So when you hear me refer to that, that's what we call him. We used to play basketball a lot together. He used to throw me some alley-oops. I just want to throw that out there. Murph was nice. Murph was nice. I think the cool thing is you're on a journey that a lot of people are, are about to be on, which is financial literacy and really trying to take control of their investment, you know, not only portfolio, but their investment journey. And the thing that I've come to a conclusion as me and Erica started telling our story and kind of putting more out there is that how much it inspired people. And you playing pro basketball, right? Everybody can't do that. Everybody can't go to the NFL, but everybody can grow in financial literacy. So yeah, man, you wrote down some thoughts and we're just going to have a conversation, bro. And hopefully somebody gets something out of it. Cause at the end of the day, we're just trying to reach whoever needs this message, man. So thank you for being on bro. And let's just dive into it. So tell me your journey. Tell me how you got over to become a pro basketball player overseas. And then why are you now wanting to understand financial literacy? Murph, you know better than anybody that uh, I didn't play basketball at a I didn't play basketball in college. And I just used to go to the runs, the pickups at the rec, or I used to go to open gym with the team. And everyone, including yourself, used to tell me, hey, man, you, you got what it takes. Like, if you want, you can make money doing this. So I had to really, like, buckle down and grind. And I had to hit the Las Vegas circuit. I had to go over seeds myself and put myself in front of people. And I basically had to just grind, you know what I mean? And that ended up actually being fruitful. And I've, I'm now in my ninth or 10th season playing in Europe. Wow. 10 years, 10 seasons. I've been doing it for a while. And since this COVID happened, this is actually, or since the quarantine and everything happened, this has actually like been a huge, like, I don't want to say kick in the butt, but like it lit a fire up under me. To, and it got my wheels burning because all I know is I need to be productive every single day. Yeah. And once this COVID hit, like I had to find ways to be productive. Me and one of my friends started a nonprofit out of Houston, the It's Only Right Foundation. And uh, once I got to Philly for the quarantine, I started riding my bike to do caviar delivery services because all the gyms were shut down. I couldn't get, I couldn't work out at all. And so we were paying mortgage of at least four people over this quarantine. And uh, so we had to figure out ways to make money outside of basketball that was, you know, wasn't a liability for us. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's kind of my little journey, a little snippet of it at least. And uh, now I'm here with you because I want to, you know, take that next step to financial literacy and gaining some, you know, generational wealth. Yeah. And I think you said earlier, you started on that journey. You've read a lot of the Robert Kiyosaki books. You know, that's the book I always put in front of people when they come to me. And I get a lot of messages like, how did you start out? What was your first step? And I always say, Robert Kiyosaki, who took my money. So you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You read a lot of the books in the series. Why are we 
on this podcast? Like, what's that next step that you're looking to accomplish? And, and, and what are you trying to get out of this conversation? I got the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book first. And after that, I got the four next ones, Who Took Your Money, Cash Flow Quadrant, and How to Invest or mm-hmm. Becoming an Investor. And this basically opened up my eyes to everything that I hadn't, I had never been exposed to. Yep. Like I come from a- And you went to Texas A&M. I went to, te- I graduated Texas A&M. I have a two-parent household. They both made six figures. And up until this, I read this book in this quarantine, I had no idea about any of this stuff. And I'm finding myself teaching my parents like some financial literacy because these are things that they didn't know either. And that goes, you know, that's super deep rooted, like systemic, like. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, And that's why we're on this journey together, bro, is just to inspire each other and no matter the age, like we can all get on this financial literacy. Like even my kids, I already got them saving money now. They're 10, right, six right. and four to buy their first investment property together. You know, like at any point in time, we can all get on this journey, man. So yeah, man. So far away with the questions. Cause I, like I said, some of the questions that you started mentioning early, I'm like, man, we gotta, we gotta get this on. We gotta <laughs> get this on tape. Cause it's, it's, it's the same questions I'm running into. So basically what I've been kind of focusing on is investing and real estate. Yep. And getting started with this real estate thing is super confusing and very overwhelming. Yep. So one of the questions I have is, if you don't have a lot of liquid, like where should you start? So the first thing I would tell you is anything you start, it's going to be tough to have a passion in the beginning, right? Because they're always like, oh, find your passion. And that's one of the things I always say, find your passion, learn your craft, put in that work to learn the craft. And then as you become the best, the resources will always find you. I don't care if you're playing sports, if you are an artist, or if you are a comedian, hell, it doesn't matter. If you really become great at it and learn your craft, the resources, the accolades, the income, the wealth will always find you. So in the space of real estate investing, what we got to figure out is what are you passionate about? Like for me, I was passionate about houses. Like I just, I love houses. And some people they're passionate about multifamily. Some people are passionate about industrial buildings. Some people are passionate about raw land. And so that's where I would tell you is just look at the overall segments. Now there's different barriers of entry and buying one duplex or a single family house is probably the easier route to get into. Okay. So I would say find that passion first. Like, what are you passionate about? And then I always say from the money standpoint, there's a couple ways to get into real estate investing. One, you can save up the money and do it yourself, right? And I think I covered this with one of my podcasts that they'll probably hear before. It's on the Luke Marvel podcast. He talked about buying a house as a conventional 3% to 5% down. Well, man, if you can buy a house with 5% down, I guarantee you that 5% down is less than what you pay in rent over the next 12 months. Okay. So it's just a little sacrifice. Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go find a cheap rental Okay. But then I'm going to put that extra money aside to be able to have my 5% down to go buy a home. And then you go find a duplex. You buy the duplex, you move in one side, you rent out the other. That's a hack to the game all day. Okay. Another one is, is to really focus on the knowledge piece. Like really get to a place where you really can study it, know it. You're networking with some of the best investors in your area. Take them to lunch. Lunch only costs 10, 15 bucks and really invest in your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because if you grow the knowledge and you can orchestrate the deal, that means you can put the deal together. Right. Then the money always finds a good real estate deal. Like I've always told people, 
if you have a great deal, it doesn't matter if it's a $200,000 deal or a $20 million deal. If it's a good deal, money will find it anytime. So you can go two routes. And then the last one is obviously, op- that's OPM, right? So other people's money. Other people's money, yeah. The other OPM is obviously going to a bank and leverage, right? Okay. So if I'm going to put down on my first investment property, you know, because I see a lot of people say, well, I'm going to save up the cash to buy a $200,000 property. Well, in the beginning, it takes a long time to save $200,000 cash. Right. It's like, I, like I said in one of the books, it's like Monopoly. Like you got to buy the smaller houses before you can get to the hotel. Yeah. And you got to leverage. You got to leverage through a bank or you got to leverage through partners. Okay. And when you say leverage, like, what do you mean? So on leverage, it's like loan to value is a good way that I explain it, right? So if I take a $100,000 property and I'm putting out 20%, that's 20,000. Well, I have to get leverage on the other 80,000. So I either got to get that where I raise private equity from investors like me, call me, I'll invest in your project. Yeah. Or you find a bank who will give you the 80%. Now, the ultimate goal is to find a property that cash flows. That means if my note on a $100,000 property is $750 or 800 bucks, then I need to be renting it for 1250 something so where I'm either cash flowing, I'm covering my vacancy. Right. So I always want to factor in vacancy in any property that I'm investing in. Even though I know I may have a 12 to 24 month lease, you always want to have that in your numbers. You want to have your taxes in your numbers, your insurance, your maintenance. And then are you cash flowing every month on that property? with putting 20% down. Right. And I'm taking a loan on the 80,000. Now, sometimes there's two ways. One, you got the wrong property identified if you're not cash flowing. Or two, you need to put down a little more. So instead of putting down 20%, you may need to put down 30%. But you got to find that balance. But that's what I say when I say OPM or leverage. Because leverage just means you take an asset or a person Mm -hmm. and you use that person or asset, which is the bank in this situation, or other people's money to accomplish a goal that you're not doing on your own. Really, that's what leverage is, right? I'm just leveraging something else. Now, when you hear people say someone got over leveraged, right? That means I I bought 10 houses for 100,000 and I only put down 5%, right? And my loan value got out of whack. That means, let's say I either wasn't cash flowing enough on the properties or the market started trending down and what I owed on the property, the house wasn't even worth anymore. Okay. So that's what you got to be careful with trying to leverage too many or too fast. Yeah. Or you see a lot of people who put 20% in and then they get 12 months into the deal. They refinance it day one. Like soon as they get the tenants in, take the equity back out. Now my loan to value, instead of an 80-20 on that $100,000 investment or example I gave you earlier, now my loan to value is 90-10 or 95-5. That's when it gets tight because now I only have 5% equity in that property and I have 95% of it leveraged. Okay. Not going to lie. All that was a lot. Yep. I did follow you though, but for someone who would be very new, where did you gain your knowledge from of all this to where you can speak as fluidly as you do? Like, was it some, was it a mentor? Was it like somebody who other realtors or was it books? Like, how did you get your start to be able to become so like fluid in this lingo. Well, man, it just comes with engulfing yourself in it. Like just being so passionate about it. I think mentors are overrated in my opinion. Keyword, my opinion, I would love to have a mentor, you know, like I would have loved to have had a great relationship with my dad. Right. But I didn't. And I think so many times we set out this perfect world 
as an investor or an entrepreneur. And then when it's not perfect, we fold or we we use it as a crutch. Well, I didn't have a mentor or, you know, I didn't have a dad in my life. Okay, there's a lot of people who don't have that. Right. So I think because now with this day and age, it's the information age. It's so much out there on YouTube. It's so much out there on social media. It's so many books now, audible podcasts. There's really no excuse to not pursue success in whatever you want. And the only thing I would have to add to it was that these days is also so oversaturated with it's so hard to find out like where the actual valuable information is because everyone is literally trying to make money off of this information that you're given right now. And they'll put all kinds of fluff and glitter on things that really won't get you anywhere at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's the cool thing that I feel like I bring that I will try to bring differently is, man, I'm just getting to the meat of it. Like you said, people withhold, right? It's kind of like, hey, just click this button and then you give that information. Well, click this other button and then click this button. And then if you come to my seminar, then I'll tell you. It's like, man, just tell me. Right. And see, that's me. Like there's a balance between giving the game to people and then giving them too much. Right. Right. And so for me, I'm an open book, man, because I know like back to the question you asked me earlier, how did I get to a place where I could speak so fluidly about it? One, I pursued the information like never before. And I took ownership because the great thing about a book is nobody can sell me on that. Right. Right. Like I'm not having somebody standing over my shoulder saying, okay, now after you finish this, then click this button and you pay another $19.99 and you pay another $29.99. Like there's no upsell. Right. I just buy the book and I digest it at my speed. And that's the hard part. People don't want to do that. Like nobody wants to read. So they want to just get right to the information and they want someone else to, it's kind of like the hunter gatherer mentality. They want somebody else to hunt the meat, skin it, cook it, and then hand it to them. I've realized there's just no magic pill out there like that. That you either got to pay for it or you're going to get upsold on it or you got to go hunt it, skin it, and get it yourself. Now, God will bring certain- Of course, that's the best way to learn how to hunt. Yes. But if we're talking about like knowledge and mm-hmm. a quicker way to get to, I mean, I'm not, I won't say a shortcut, but I feel like paying it forward is a way to make it easier for the people coming behind you. Like that's why yeah. you are teaching your kids how to invest right now. So yeah. they don't have to jump through all these hoops and read everything, go through all these books. Like, cause I know you're, library is probably like over like 500 books right now. Yeah, it is. And so I'm sure that you're going to teach your kids to where they might only need a hundred. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm a big advocate of pay it forward. Like, so anyone who comes to me about like the basketball grind specifically, because I've been there, I will give them as much game as I can. So they don't have to go through the same struggles as I did. But in the same token, you do need to learn how to hunt skin and cook yourself. Yes. So it's hard to find that, uh, I guess, sweet spot to where you're not spoon feeding them, but you're also not making them work as hard as you did. I think the thing is, but see, that's the hard part. There's a lot of givers out there. Yeah. But givers get taken advantage of all the time. Right. Because they just give, give, give. And so then it starts making them withdraw. And then the people who aren't givers that are out there trying to upsell everybody. So it makes it tough. And that's where you start seeing this whole day one. If you're not with me day one, I'm not going to help you. I don't believe in that mentality. I believe whoever God brings across my path, if I can help him with an encouraging word or send him this way, appoint him in that direction, I will. And that's the whole reason why I started the podcast 
because I was trying to respond to too many people and I couldn't keep up. Right. But at some token, I can try to save you a couple lumps on the head, but you're going to still get some lumps on the head when you get in the game. That's just a part of it, right? So what I would say is finding a mentor, I think is a little overrated, but that's me. I'm type A. I'm a wolf, right? You are, you put me in the desert, I'll find my way to the water. Everybody doesn't have that mentality. So you got to find however you learn. And then you got to, it's the one thing that I started saying, I've been saying it for a while, but I didn't realize it was something I consistently said, but it's the one brick mentality. Yeah, for sure. So I can give you the game, but if it's based on upsell and how much stuff I can sell you, and it's really a lot of fluff, then you'll go running down a path for six months, nine months, or however long it takes you to figure it out and realize that you really didn't build it with the right foundation versus the one brick mentality that I talk about is taking one brick and just setting it down. And like I always tell people, like they see us buying these commercial buildings out of state. They see us developing neighborhoods and golf course communities. They see us selling million dollar houses and ranches and stuff. I started off my first real estate transaction with a $78,000 duplex. Right. And for that whole year, in that moment in time, that was the biggest thing that had ever happened at that time. And I was just content with learning in that space. Right. And that's the part I want you to like take away from this. Just be okay with where you're at. Don't even think about trying to speed up the process, right? Just engulf yourself in the process, that one brick mentality, right? So like, if we're going to build your home, we're going to make sure that this foundation is, is built right. Before we start stacking sticks and going up on it, we need to make sure that you have a great conceptual knowledge of that, the foundation, which in this situation was what I went over earlier. Right. Leverage, OPM, LTV, cash flow. Really get those basic fundamentals down, just like you're dribbling the ball, right? You didn't come out day one doing behind the back passes and trying to dunk. You just start doing through the free throw line. Let me just make layups. The hardest part I see with people who are successful at one thing and then they try to transition to being successful at something else is they don't want to go back to the bottom of the totem pole. And you're talking to a man, I had to do that. You know, I was at the top of the game. I was first team all conference, top draft pick, first two rounds of the NFL draft. I was at the top of the game and I'm at the senior bowl. I'm at the rookie symposium with the top draft picks taking photos. And then I got injured and I had to start over. And that was hard for me to understand like, damn, I did all that work. And now I got to start back at the bottom. Right. But that's that one brick mentality. But that's why you have to find something that you're passionate about. Because if you find something passionate that you love, it doesn't seem like work. And it doesn't seem like you're going back down to the bottom. Because whenever I think of, I don't know, getting into real estate or investing and, you know, trying to build this wealth, it's not something that like, dang, I have to work this hard at. It's just, it's more like something like, I really don't know how to get into this. And I really want to like learn how to do this. I just don't know where to start. You know what I mean? Yeah, let me tell you. So let's dive into that. Like you said, it's a little overwhelming. I know your first deal was a $78,000 duplex. First question is, how did you find this sale to pull the trigger on? Yep. And also, I want to know, if, why did you decide to do this instead of like a rental or a wholesale or sell as is? Like, And what would be your professional opinion? Because you are a professional. Uh, yep. What would be your professional opinion? as where to uh, start. what I should get into or what, what would be the easiest way to, you know, build a sale or yeah. build a deal. Yeah. I would say you got wholesaling, you got flipping houses, you got long-term investors, you got guys who buy, build equity, appreciation, refi. And really 
it goes back to what's your end goal? Like if I asked you in 10 years, what would your portfolio look like? And why are you even wanting to invest in real estate? Well, for me, it was mailbox money and passive income. That means that my dream one day would be that if I don't get out of the bed, I still have multiple revenue streams of income coming in and I'm providing a a value proposition to my tenants, right? Right. And so once you understand what that is, because some people, it's not that. It's, I want to make as much money as possible over the next three to five years. Well, that's when you see people flipping houses. Or I've seen people flipping houses to put enough money in the bank to then turn around and go pay cash or go buy a long-term investment. So that would be really trying to understand, like, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, I remember saying, like, I want to have 100 properties, right? Well, what does that look like, right? And really just asking yourself, because one of the things that I've, this is a good, like, traction, it's the book, Gino Wickman. He has a thing called VTO. You need to look on his website and get that. It's the Vision Traction Organizer. And you can write out your one year, three year, five year, and it's all on one sheet of paper. And then you make the steps to get to that next piece, right? Because I think we're now at, you know, almost 350, 370 beds or something like that. And I started off with, you know, a two bed duplex. So that's what I would say is really trying to understand what you're trying to accomplish. How did you like line up your deals and how do you pick what deal you're going to get into? No, that's good. For a first first time home buyer, first time investor, like what are some things that I need to look out for? One, you need to know where your money's coming from. So are you going to raise capital? Okay. And remember, we already talked about if I'm going to raise capital, if I'm going to OPM other people's money, mm-hmm. then I got to make sure that I know the deals. I know the numbers. I have the returns. I have it all fleshed out. I know kind of the pro forma is what you'll hear. You'll hear the word pro forma. All a pro forma is, is a workup of the investment property. So that means as an investor, if you came to me and said, T, I'm raising this much money, I can look at that pro forma and say, hmm, that's a good return. I'll give you the money. Or let me go look at the property. It's a little tight on the cash flow, right? So right. that's one way, OPM. But remember, I always tell people, it's just like any relationship or in a partnership with somebody, somebody's got to be bringing something to the table that the other person doesn't have. So like if you say, look, I'm going to be the one hustling, beating the streets, writing handwritten letters, knocking on doors. I'm going to put the pro forma together. I'm going to put the management team together. I'm even going to know what it needs to be done on the house to like remodel and get it up to speed. Then you just brought me a lot of sweat equity, energy, time that I don't have right now. So I have the cash, but you have the knowledge, the deal flow and the opportunities, right? Right. So the other one is, it's all about deal flow. And like you said, how do I get deal flow? One, you can find a realtor who's in the game, the best properties I learned, the best properties to invest in, they never hit the market. Right. So, And building a network of people that can just give you referrals and that know how to get these deals done is really hard to come by. All it is is hustling though, bro. I remember driving around to the areas I wanted to invest in and I called every realtor every week. And by the time I would call, they would always say, oh, it's already sold. Oh, it's already sold. Oh, it's already sold. And that's when I realized I'm spinning my wheels because by the time I look on Realtor.com or Zillow and or call to sign, it's already sold. Right. So I said, okay, how can I position myself to this realtor to let them know I'm serious? So I said, hey, do you mind if I stop by your office for 15 minutes and introduce myself? I had homemade business cards, handed my business card, and I went over my vision and what I want to do. And I'm like, just 
Give me an opportunity. I promise you, I won't let you down. And all you got to do, what people don't understand, it's just like the NFL, right? It's like any, you just got to have that one game that puts you on the map. And then once you get that, then that creates the whole, he's a viable prospect. But you got to hustle until you get that first deal. I always tell people, God can't steer a parked car. You just got to get the car out of the garage, which is your first deal. Once you get that deal done, then now when I call Jay Hud on his sign and say, hey, I'm interested in this deal. Well, I don't have anything. Hey, look, I bought the house around the corner. Do you remember that one that went on the market? I bought that one and the one next door. If anything else comes up on the street, I want it. Okay. So I literally started in Southside right by Kyle Field. And you know, I mean, on one street, I own like 50 properties. Right. And it started off just buying them one at a time. But it's all about the hustle, bro. And the cool thing is, as an athlete, you already know all the hustle. You're just making a shift in your mind. So the same mentality that you said, okay, if practice is from two to five and the gym is Everybody walks out at five. I'm going to stay from six to seven or eight o'clock. It's the thing that saddens my heart the most about Kobe Bryant, because not only was Kobe my guy, but Kobe was executing and showing us the roadmap on how to transition from an athlete and taking that same tenacity, energy and work ethic and put it in in the business and in an investing. Yo, him and Nipsey Hussle, man. I'm still heard about that. Nipsey Hussle doing the exact same thing. Yeah, they showed us the roadmap. So like, I mean, Kobe had a billion dollar fund all within what, 24, 36 months? Right. So it's like, it can be done. You just got it. So going back to how do I get in? You find a realtor or you go hustle. I used to literally get up. My wife had a job as an elementary teacher and I didn't get a job. I said, but I got up and got dressed every morning like I had a job. And I rode the streets looking for for sale by owner signs, realtor signs. And I was knocking on doors, handing out business cards and writing handwritten letters saying, I want to buy your property. Now that's the old school way. Obviously that was 2007, 2008. Now you can just throw it through social media and just look up, look up the realtors that keep popping up on realtor.com and say, look, I want to introduce myself in whatever area market you want to invest in. Okay. Have you ever done the foreclosure route? Yeah. So foreclosures is something that everybody talks about, right? Especially after 2008, 19, 11, and 12, you got to be ready to pay cash. And you got to be, you got to have those relationships at the courthouse or with the banks, right? The, the REOs, real estate owned properties or bank owned properties. And if you don't have those relationships or you have the hard capital, I go more of the steady eddy route because remember, I'm trying to build my resume one brick at a time. And I would love to just jump right out of the gate and do a multifamily $30 million syndication. But to jump right out of the gate doing that, there's another w- another way you can go is go work for a company like that. Go work for a syndication firm who does syndication for multifamily and just be an employee for 24 months. You're young. You got time. Don't feel like you got to have the pressure of doing the deal right now yourself. But if you want to get in the game yourself, then OPM is probably the best way or using the hack that I said earlier, where I buy a duplex or I buy a single family house or a townhome. I move into it so it's owner occupied and that gives me the leeway to put down 3.5 to 5%. And then the goal is to stay in it for 12 months, 24 months or whatever, and then move out of it and try to do it again. Okay. And um, there's no like least amount of liquid that someone would need or is it just situational? It's very situational. And that's what I'm saying. Like for me, my whole life, I've never heard no. And that's been my final. I've always said, okay, what's the issue I'm dealing with? What am I trying to accomplish and how do I get there? So when, like you said, liquid, right? Well, if I'm like, well, I got the books, I read the books, I got the knowledge, I got the energy, but I can't get to my first deal because I don't have the capital. Well, most of the time it's, it's usually 
0.5 to 1% earnest money that you have to put down on a rental property or something when you tie it up. So go find that deal, work the structure, tie it up under option. Usually you can get a seven to 10 day, 14 day option. And in those 14 days, you go pitch that deal to investors and raise the money. And now I have my earnest money. So if it's a $200,000 property, I got 1500 bucks tied up. And then I go pitch it to Terrence or whoever and say, hey, be my investor on this project. And then they come in as an equity partner, however you want to structure it. And that's for another conversation. And then now I'm in and do that a couple of times. And then for you know it, based on the cash flow on those partnership properties, you can take your own cash and go start buying your own properties. So that's what I'm saying. That's the great thing about real estate is there is no, there's not a no situation. There's not a, I'm stuck. There's literally always a way to solve every problem. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was talking to one of my friends. He is doing real estate in Dallas and he would tell me about this, some deals he did, like where he would get other people's money. Basically, someone would come to him with a house that's maybe worth 150000 And the guy, he would say that, okay, you can just give me a hundred and come up with the other hundred or under 50. And I'd be like, okay, well, what'd you do after that? He said, well, I just went to somebody else to get the other 50 because it was worth, I think about 500. And so he just needed to get this 150. And so he got two other people to get that 150 and he sold it and he gave 10% to one of the guys who put in and they split the rest of it half down the middle. And so he didn't literally have to spend none of his money and he got quite a, you know, profit from it. Well, they call that bird dogging too. They call that bird dogging. That means you went and found the deal, you structured it, you put it all together. That's what I'm saying. Like, but that's the value that he brought in that particular situation. He went and found the deal. So he's got the deal flow. He had the structure. He had the strategy. So now I told you, it doesn't matter what, that's why people on a hundred million dollar projects raise money and they're able to get their equity round filled because whether it's a hundred million, a hundred thousand, if it's a good real estate transaction, people always want to invest in a tangible asset. Yeah, everyone likes making money in anything, startups, whatever. But people like tangible assets because if I invest in your startup, let's say it's a technology startup, and I love technology startups. This isn't a negative, but let's just say it flops in two years, and I gave you a hundred grand or two hundred grand or whatever. I gave you a million dollars, whatever. I have nothing to show for it. Versus, I give you that same amount of money for a real estate project is still sitting there. It's still tangible. Even if it's not perfect, it's not just crazy cash flowing. We can still make some maneuvers and we have a tangible asset. So yeah. And then like on that deal, your friend raised that money. If you start getting into other people's money and and letting their money be a part of the project, you really want to find an attorney who can make sure that your contracts and everything is structured right. Because that's the one thing. It's the reason why in the beginning when I started investing, Man, I just was like, I had teammates and friends who were like, hey, let me invest in your projects. I'm like, nah, man, let me learn the game. Let me feel very confident in anything before I ever raise money. Right. But I've never raised money on any of our projects, but that's something I'm finna start doing for some bigger projects. We're starting the TM5 Equity Partners, where you're going to be able to look at our real estate projects, whether they're commercial buildings, multifamily, industrial buildings, and you're going to be able to invest in our real estate projects. But now after, you know, 12, 13 years, I feel confident doing that now. So did you say, which which do you prefer? Would it be a flip or rent or sell as as is? So, you know, I build spec homes for a living, right? I do customs. I do a lot of like modern contemporary homes and custom homes. 
They call it speculative building when you, that's why it's a spec home because it's speculative. That means I'm going to build it, design it and hope that somebody buys it. Yeah. That's the same way I feel about flipping houses. Okay. I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to go in, remodel it, renovate it, whatever, or I'm just going to tie it up for a low price and then try to sell it and flip it to somebody else. It's, it's very speculative. Okay. Versus if I go buy a property and I structure the financing right, and I know I'm putting down this a certain amount of money, I know I have at least for the next 24 months, I know what the bones are like. That means I've done inspections on it. I know exactly what I'm getting and I know the location is going to be a long-term hold. That to me is more sound because I can project out better. Even if I'm not able to do as many, because you see people like, oh, I flipped 20 houses last year. I bought five, you flipped 20, but my balance sheet shows better assets because I own all those five that I was bought, right? And you flipped all the ones you had. So yeah, you made some money. Um, The other thing too is you got to remember when you're flipping houses, you're paying capital gain taxes. Okay. So I don't know what tax bracket you're in, but you have to look at your tax bracket, refer to your CPA and kind of know what your capital gain tax range will be. So obviously, let's say you have a $100,000 house, you flip it and make 50 grand. You got to pay capital gains on that 50 grand, bro. Right. Versus me putting down a certain percentage into my rental. And here's the thing that not a lot of people talk about. That same rental that I bought and put it down, that cash flow that I made, mm-hmm. that's the cash after all my expenses. That's why it's called cash flow. There's actually a thing called phantom income or debt pay down. So let me go through this analogy with you real quick and then we'll progress. So if you take a $100,000 property, I was like doing that because it's easy numbers. We can obviously push this up to $100 million. But let's just say $100,000 property. I put down 20%. That's 20 grand. So my debt is 80K. But let's just say in 24 months, that house appreciated to 150,000. Now in two years, it's worth 150 grand. Okay. Certain areas that happens. Not a lot, but let's just say on average, a house over time, if you take the last since 1920s, about 8% on average a year is the appreciation rate, give or take. But let's just, you know, 8, 16, 24. It depends on what market you're in. But let's just say for this scenario, it appreciated to 150,000 and then the tenants paid down my debt to 50 grand. They paid it down 30,000. So now instead of only having $20,000 equity in this property, I only owe 50, but it's worth 150. Right. That means I have now $100,000 of equity that the appreciation, the market built up over time, and then the tenants, somebody else paid down my debt. So that debt pay down is the phantom income. That means that was income that somebody paid down and you didn't do it yourself. Uh-huh. And then the appreciation. So I, cre- I say that that's that equity in between. So I only put $20,000 of my own money. Right. But in 24, 36, 48 months, but I have $100,000 of equity because I bought it and I held it. And it was a good, I, I bought it right. It was in a great market. It was in a market that's appreciating. And I have solid tenants paying their, their rent every month. Now I have $100,000 equity. Right. And that's what I'm saying. That's how you build wealth through investing in real estate. Okay. Does that make sense? Versus now, I try to buy that house and flip it. Right. I made a good pop, but immediately I'm paying capital gain taxes on it. But on my equity, that hundred grand equity, I only put 20 grand in. I have $80,000 more. Ask me how much taxes I paid on that eighty thousand dollars. How much? Zero. Did you put it right back into another 
yeah. So in this situation, it appreciated 50 grand right. to 150. I paid down the note from 80 to 50. That's that $100,000. So when the tenants paid that debt down, I didn't pay any taxes on that. And I didn't pay any taxes on appreciation because I didn't sell it. Now, if I want to get that equity, some of it out of it, I can now refi it in three, four years or 12, 24 months. Yeah. And I can take that cash out tax free and go invest it in another home or another duplex or another apartment or another commercial building. So I literally let appreciation and tenant debt pay down, phantom income, build that equity, refi, pull it out, go buy something else. So that's if you're trying to ramp up. Remember I said, you always got to balance being over leveraged. You start refining too many properties too fast, you can get in a pickle. But that's where you can look at your balance sheet and know how much equity do I have? How much cash flow do I have? And really have a good banker that can help you with that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was, uh, I won't say turned off about, but because one of my friends that's here in Philadelphia, he does a lot of flips and he does a lot of rental properties. And so he'll go to the bank and get a loan and it'll be probably over 30, 20 to 30 years. And it takes him probably anywhere from eight to 12 months to finish a rental property. And then he's finally get renters in and then they start paying it down. But if you, if you have 10 rental properties that you took out loans on with these 20 to 30 year you know, deals, I feel like that's pretty inefficient. Yeah, I'll help you. Remember, it goes back to what your end goal is. And we'll end with a couple of thoughts. Like if you're trying to live off the cash flow, yeah, then that's where you see people put them on these 20, 30 year notes because they're going to obviously the longer the amortization on an investment property, that doesn't affect the rental income. Because that 100000 or $100 million property or whatever, we already know what the rent is, but your cash flow is affected by your amortization schedule. So that means if I put it on a 20-year note, 30-year note, versus putting it on a 10-year note or 15-year note, my cash flow is going to, I'm going to make a lot more per month in extra cash flow that I can turn around and put in my operating account or pull out of the property, whatever. Or if I'm trying to pay it down faster, then I go get a 10-year note or a 15-year note with a 10-year balloon or whatever. And then I'm not cash flowing as much on that same property, but man, I'm paying that note down fast. Yeah. And that goes back to, that's why, like you said, I can see where it's overwhelming, but you just slowly build out your business plan or your strategy because day one, you're not going to start off knowing all of these things. Right. And to take someone else's plan and say, well, he's doing 30 year notes. So that's what I'm going to do. Well, it's got to match up to what your goals are. Right. At one point I said, when I'm 40, I want every one of my properties paid off. I'm not there yet, even though I got the gray going on. I'm still, you know, a couple years out. But it's like, in order to get to that, then I had to put everything on 10, 15 year notes. Right. So what did that do to my properties? It squeezed my cash flow. I didn't have crazy cash flow, but man, my debt pay down and my equity buildup was crazy. So you just really got to, and you got to walk through that and really try to understand what that is. And that's how you really set your, so now when I get deals that come my way, I know exactly what my parameters are that I'm looking for, because once you build up a track record, then like we talked about earlier, deal flow, deal flow is one of the most amazing things that you can ever create in this industry. Okay. It's the same way with LeBron James. He's a marketing phenomenon now because he's created so much equity with Nike and with this and with that. Right. So he just deals just come to him now. Well, in real estate investing, it's the same way. Like once you build that track record, realtors, for sale by owners, people in the community, they're going to look you up because they know Terrence can close. He's a, When he tells me he's going to close the deal in 30 days or 45 days, I'm going to go to him. Well, then as you build that deal flow up, 
then now you can take your parameters and say, does this fit in my parameters of my return on investment? What is my percentage? What is my cap rate or whatever? And you run it through that worksheet. And if it doesn't fit, then you say, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity, but I'm not really interested in that one. And then you can be you can be uh, selective. Okay. So, I mean, starting out, you can't really be that selective. You just kind of have to take what comes. You got to get in where you fit in. It doesn't mean that you have to just go and that's the that's always the tricky part when you start getting people raising money because they feel the pressure of, man, I've now raised this money. I have to go deploy it. I have to go invest it right now versus I'm going to find the money once I find the deal. And I'm more of structure the deal, find the deal, then go find the money or invest your own money versus let me raise the money. And now I got to go deploy it and put it to work. It just creates a, a burden that is not really my personality. It works for a lot of people, but it's not really mine. Okay. That's, that's understandable. What would be like the top three lessons you've learned the hard way since you started? I would say don't depend on anybody else to know your numbers and know your strategy and know your goals. At the end of the day, if a property doesn't meet these requirements, am I still going to invest in it or not? So that's like right off the jump. You need to build that because whether you raise money from investors or you get the bank to leverage and give you the funds to buy a property, your name's on the dotted line. And if the deal goes awry, no one cares about anything else other than you told me (laughs) (laughs) that this deal was going to do this, 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 and this, whether it's the bank or the investors, and they're going to make you own it. Right. So that's the first thing. So that's why I'm always real big on if the shit hits the fan, can I be the person knowledge-wise to know how to unwind it or get us out of this predicament we're in? I'm not calling around, depending on other people. And that's just studying, praying, learning, and asking questions, doing exactly what you're doing. Okay. So that'd be number one. Okay. Number two is find an area that you can become an expert. That means, shit, it may be College Station for you. It may be your hometown. It may be a market that you played basketball in for two years when you were there as a pro basketball player, and then you're going to go back and invest. Find an area that you have some familiarity with. Yeah. Because you see these investors who jump off the fence and they're in an area, but they want to drive way on the other side of Texas and invest in a project that they've never seen. They didn't even walk the property. And then they wonder why the deal went awry because you're investing in a market you don't really understand. You don't understand the dynamics. I understand the dynamics about College Station. I've been here for a long time now. That's a uh, nice little nugget right there. So you got to understand those dynamics and you got to understand where it's going and you got to know the market, right? Because let's just say I come to College Station and I'm going to throw up a 15, 20 story high rise condos and try to lease those out. I'm not in Miami, bro. I'm going to get skinned in College Station trying to do that, right? So really understand that. And then the third one, this is probably the best one, is the three Ps. I actually got it from a book. It's called Fanatical Prospecting. And uh, I think Jeb Blunt is the writer. And he, he calls it the three Ps, procrastination, analysis, and paralysis, and like putting it off, right? So it's like, at some point, you just got to get in the game. And if that's that $78,000 duplex that you need to, in order to give yourself that confidence that, look, I can close a deal and I can manage a deal and I can learn, then it is what it is. But at some point, you just got to get out there, bro. You just got to run on the field and get your helmet knocked off a couple of times. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's just a part of it. Like, you can't expect that, look, I'm going to get out here in front of 100,000 playing with these grown men and I'm not going to get knocked on my butt. Like, it's going to happen. And you just need to be ready to know when you do get knocked on your butt, 
what are you going to do to get up and fix it? Right. Okay. So that's the three I would tell you to start with, along with just reading and going and gaining knowledge. You just got to get in the game. Wise words from a decent man. Well, man, hey, I'm here for you if you need me on anything. Thank you for doing this, bro. I know this was kind of a impromptu podcast, but thank you hey, for being hey, my you guest. Know, it's anything for you, man. You family. <laughs> yeah. So I'm here for you, bro, if you need me. And uh, thank you for your time, dog. Hey, no problem, man. All right, dog. Love you, bro. Just hit me up offline and then we'll, we'll chop it up soon. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening and consider leaving a five-star review as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to TerrenceMurphy.com. 